Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. A two-year UW campus in Washington County may be forced to merge with a tech college. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that a Washington County task force voted to request that the UW merge the two-year campus with Moraine Park Technical College. This move follows the closure of the UW-Richland County campus earlier this year. Enrollment at the Washington campus has declined to 332 students, less than half of what it was 10 years ago. UW-Madison has announced the finalists for the position of the campus provost, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Many of the finalists have Big Ten ties coming from Michigan State, Penn State, the University of Connecticut, and Georgia Tech University, respectively. The provost is the chief academic officer and is often considered to be a university's number two official behind the chancellor. UW-Madison is hosting all finalists on campus this week. Public presentations will be part of that. The university expects to have their selected candidates start in late summer. The new provost will replace John Schultz, who announced last month that he has taken a position as president of the University of Oregon. Some harsh criticism has surfaced about the new proposed quarters for the State Historical Society. The new museum at the west corner of the Capitol Square will be twice the size of the existing building. Its construction will require the demolition of two 100-year-old office buildings on Carroll Street. WKOW reports that the proposed $160 million building has come under criticism by historical preservationists and the seller of the two old office buildings, Madison attorney and realtor Fred Mose. Mose described the building as cheesy. Initial drawings of the new historical museum show a building that is largely glass and metal, unlike the dark brick and stone of the buildings targeted for demolition. The museum CEO, Christian Overland, said that the criticism criticism aside, they intend to move forward with its modern design. Madison police have arrested a local man for allegedly booby-trapping the Badger State Trail bike path with a clothesline. At least three times last summer, a line was stretched across the path for the purpose of knocking down a biker. In August, a biker riding at 5 in the morning on the way to work was caught in the neck. The police said the suspect was caught through his DNA. Madison police told the Wisconsin State Journal that after his arrest, the suspect confessed to laying the lines. Students in Madison schools will have more mental health services over the next five years due to a partnership with UW-Madison. The Capital Times reports that UW-Madison will recruit and train 24 new school psychology graduate students over four years. Those students will complete their training in the Madison Metro School District and, upon graduation, be required to complete three years of service in a, quote, high-needs local school. The program is being funded by a $6 million grant from the U.S. Department of Education. Those are today's headlines. Now onto the rest of the day's top stories. Voters descended upon polling places en masse yesterday, breaking the record for turnout in a spring election without a presidential primary on the ballot. (coughs) Pardon me. 
The Associated Press reports that more than 36 percent of the state's voting age populace cast a ballot yesterday. Dane County turned up a whopping 62.3 percent of registered voters, with election workers reporting thrumming polling places despite the wind and rain. So who are the winners and losers? Our producer, Nate Wegehout, breaks down these state and local results. It took less than an hour after polls closed last night for analysts to call the race for Janet Protasiewicz as she steadily beat out competitor Dan Kelly with a double-digit lead. The soon-to-be-justice Protasiewicz took the stage at her campaign watch party in downtown Milwaukee. It is the absolute honor of a lifetime to be elected as your next justice on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And when her 10-year term begins on August 1st, Protozawicz will shift the balance of power on the state's top court to a 4-3 to liberal majority, shattering the 15-year conservative majority on the court. At her election party in Milwaukee last night, Protozawicz thanked voters, saying that they sent two messages with their vote. First, it means that Wisconsin voters have made their voices heard. Yeah. They've chosen to reject partisan extremism in this state. And second, it means our democracy will always prevail. The race now holds the record for the most expensive state Supreme Court race in the nation, topping out at $45 million as of a week ago. The conservative candidate Dan Kelly was appointed in 2016 by former Governor Scott Walker to fill out a term on the state Supreme Court, but he has never been elected to the office. This was Kelly's second bid for Supreme Court justice. He lost in 2020 to Jill Karofsky. Speaking at his campaign party in Green Lake, Kelly had harsh words for Protasiewicz, refusing to call her to concede the election. I wish that in a circumstance like this, I would be able to concede to a worthy opponent, but I do not have a worthy opponent to which I can concede. This was the most deeply deceitful, dishonorable, despicable campaign I have ever seen run for the courts. It was truly beneath contempt. The win for Democrats comes at a pivotal time, leaving them poised to press key issues with a court now in their favor. In a lawsuit challenging Wisconsin's 19th century abortion ban filed last year by Governor Evers and Attorney General Call, oral arguments have been set for next month. The case is expected to be appealed and ultimately decided by the state Supreme Court. Portozawicz made the abortion ban, along with redistricting, the main tentpole of her campaign. Meanwhile, voters also approved both statewide referendums on the ballot. One, a binding constitutional amendment, will allow judges to consider more factors in deciding pretrial release and cash bail for criminal defendants. Opponents say the change would do little to address public safety, but would result in more lower-income people incarcerated before trial. That constitutional amendment passed with around 67 percent of the vote statewide and 54 percent approval in Dane County. Another referendum, this time an advisory question on welfare requirements, passed with about 80% of the vote statewide and 54% approval in Dane County. The question, which asked if able-bodied and childless adults should be required to look for work in order to receive taxpayer-funded benefits, is already the case in Wisconsin. Dane County saw high voter turnout yesterday with around 62% of registered voters casting their ballots. That's higher than the last state Supreme Court election in the spring of 2020, which saw around 56% voter turnout. That election also held a presidential primary race. 
Here in Madison, around 114,000 voters cast their ballots for Madison mayor, with incumbent Satya Rhodes Conway beating out challenger Gloria Reyes by about 11 percent. While Reyes brought in strong numbers on the east and south sides of Madison, those numbers were not enough to overcome Rhodes Conway, who took almost every ward in both downtown and the west side. In all, Rhodes Conway took home 55% of the vote to Reyes's 44%. That's less of a margin for Rhodes Conway than when she was first elected in 2019 when she beat former Mayor Paul Soglin with nearly 62% of the vote. At a campaign party at the Turnkey last night, Rhodes Conway laid out her priorities for the next four years. We're going to continue to prioritize public safety, housing, fighting the climate crisis, equitable economic development, and investing in our young people. Reyes, a former Madison police officer, former president of the Madison School Board, and former CEO of Briar Patch Youth Services, spent the majority of her campaign criticizing the mayor, saying that she had not listened to Madison residents. At her campaign party on the west side at the Caspian Grill, Reyes says that she's disappointed but glad she ran. You see, I was not supposed to make it this far. Significant barriers that life threw at me, but still remain determined and resilient to ensure that the hard work of my parents was not in vain. I am so proud of the campaign we ran and the issues we brought to the forefront of this election. Rhodes Conway will kick off her second term with a new batch of city alders. Every alder seat was on the ballot yesterday, with 14 of the city's 20 districts seeing contested races. Seven sitting alders were able to retain their seats yesterday, with some races seeing two sitting alders going head-to-head due to redistricting. In the West Side, District 10, incumbent Yannette Figueroa Cole beat out current Alder Sherry Carter by just 82 votes. In District 20, Alder Barbara Harrington McKinney beat out the district's incumbent Alder, Matt Fair. And one of last night's Alder races still could be too close to call. Noah Lieberman beat out Isidore Knox Jr. by just two votes in District 14 yesterday, and Lieberman says that he wants every vote to be counted before he declares victory. I want to make sure that all of the provisional ballots are counted, um, that everybody has a chance to have their voice heard before officially declaring it. But I am uh, hopeful that the result that we have right now, where I've been elected, will hold. Even if the provisional ballots stay in Lieberman's favor, a recount could turn the tides in the race. Meanwhile, the council now has eight new faces. The new council will be sworn in on April 18th. The Madison Clerk's Office says that they issued 77 provisional ballots throughout the city yesterday. Provisional voters have until 4 p.m. Friday to turn in their proper paperwork to have their ballot counted. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Both mayoral candidates <coughs> held campaign parties last night as they watched the results of the election pour in. Once the results were in, News Director Shali Pittman and WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt spoke with both of the candidates for their immediate thoughts. The mood at the turnkey on East Washington was jovial last night as incumbent Mayor Sati Rhodes-Conway announced that she had won re-election and will continue to serve Madison for the next four years. Shortly after giving her acceptance speech, she spoke with WORT News Director Shali Pittman about what comes next. 
So, typical campaign question, how are you feeling tonight? It's about 10-16 and we already know the results of your election. Uh, I'm feeling great. Uh, obviously, I'm really grateful that Madison uh, re-elected me, but I am so excited for the state of Wisconsin tonight that we elected Judge Janet. That um, It just really changes the game for our state. Well, so four more years, you alluded in your speech to some of the things that you want to do in your second term. Can you outline maybe your top three priorities? Yeah, well, it, number one top priority is working on housing. Um, we continue to need more housing in this community, and um, so that's something that we have been working on for the past four years. We're going to keep working hard for the next four years as well. Um, we do also have to make sure that we're working on public safety, and I mean that very broadly, um, so that we are certainly looking at law enforcement, but we're also looking at public health, and we're looking at uh, community development and investing in people to make our community safer. So it's been a long five months, made it through, but as you kind of reflect on it, and especially towards the end and the back-to-back -back debates, is there anything that you're taking away with you from that experience, like some, anything that's shifted your thinking or not? You know, it's been um, really interesting, particularly in the forums, to hear the questions uh, that that people asked, and and particularly the questions that like would come from the audience. You know, when when the forums had that that option, and um, so that was really interesting to just hear what was on people's minds and, and how much housing was on people's minds, um, and it really made me think a lot about you know what we need to be working on going forward, and it reaffirms you know. My my feeling that housing is a top priority for our community, but um, it was really nice actually to go get into different neighborhoods and to, to hear what those neighborhoods care about. Is there anything you didn't expect to hear? in those forums and debates or just door knocking or anything like that? Do you know, that I think um, going in, I thought that public safety would be a much bigger issue in the campaign, and I was surprised how little it came up in the forums. And um, I think that's a testament to the good work that MPD has been doing to reduce uh, the most concerning crimes in our community. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we can rest. Uh, we still have to work hard to make, make sure that we have a safe community. One more thing in your speech, I noticed that you got some chuckles at a certain point, uh, mentioning that you can't wait to continue working with the Madison School Board. Um, is there anything you want to add? <laughs> You know, I actually do think that, that one um, theme that I want to continue into the next term is collaboration. Um, so certainly we've had really strong collaboration with the county uh, over the past four years, but I'd like to... Um, which has not always been the case for Madison. Which has not always been the case, that's right. Um, and we've had, I think, good collaboration with the school district, but I would really like to deepen that um, and to make sure that we're working more closely with the board, but also helping the school district to really recruit an excellent superintendent. Um, so I'm, I'm actually excited about that. I think that's a real opportunity for our community. Um, and I would like to, you know, make sure that we are working with surrounding communities as well. And I did reach out to them four years ago and have good relationships with, um, you know, the folks that were in office. And um, there'll be some new faces um, uh, in, in the city halls that surround Madison. And so I'm looking forward to getting to know those folks and, and forming working relationships there too. Have you talked to any of the other surrounding mayors in Fitchburg or Sun Prairie or... Not yet. 
Uh, I did text um, the, the mayor of Monona, and I need to text the others tonight and say congratulations. Well, I'll let you do that. Thank you so much. Newly re-elected Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway. Thank you so much. Meanwhile, at the Caspian Grill on the far west side, dance performances and music from DJ Payne One kept the mood light as Gloria Reyes announced that she had conceded the race for Madison Mayor. Shortly after her concession speech, I, along with Isthmus reporter Jane Husiel, caught up with Reyes to reflect on the last few months of her campaign. So just sort of out of the gate, uh, how, how are you feeling right now with the, uh, with the election results here? You know, I feel great. I think it's not obviously the results that we wanted, but I mean, I'm just in awe with the how much support came out uh, for the votes um, and the people, my supporters who came out here tonight. And so we didn't lose by a large margin, by no means. And so, and as uh, an underdog, as I mentioned in my speech, right, I've been an underdog my entire life. And so I think that this has been... Um, a blessing. It's been an, a, quite an experience, and I think it really gave us an opportunity to talk about the issues that are impacting uh, Madisonians, and that's very important. We only get four years to do this, and so um, overall, I feel great. Um, not the news that we wanted, but um, that's okay. We got the message through, and we're going to move forward, and uh, we finished strong. It's been it's been a long couple of months here on this campaign trail. Have have you learned anything uh, in the, over the course of this race, either about Madison or yourself or anything? I've learned that you know. I mean, I always knew that we had a very engaged community. Um, what I've learned is that um, you know we our residents don't feel heard by city government and particularly our mayor, and so. It's really frustrating um, to hear from our residents who feel like they're not connected, um, their voices are not heard, and you know, that's not right. And so I think that's what I've learned through this process. And you know, we need a mayor who's going to serve the residents, um, Madisonians, and we just don't have that right now. Um, that needs to change, and the re our residents need to continue to push and push um, and to ensure that there's transparency and accountability. And looking at the last couple of months, is there anything that you would have done differently over the course of this campaign? You know, I mean, I think it was really hard as the incumbent, or um, as the opponent of an incumbent, to really get my message out. And so I think, um, you know, most people felt like, oh, well, you know, um, they're similar. <laughs> um, and I didn't have an opportunity to get my policies and um, out and what I would accomplish as mayor. Um, and I really relied on the forums and the debates to do that. And I wish I would have had my own platform to really share um, the ideas and strategies that I would bring as mayor. And um, so I think that that's the only thing, but we had a strong team, um, you know, uh, but it was really hard to get my messaging out. And now what, what comes next for you? What, what are you, uh, what's on the horizon for Gloria Reyes? I'm not sure yet, you know, I'm, I'm committed to Madison, you know, like I've said in this whole campaign races, Madison raised me, you know, and so I'm going to continue to give back to uh, a community that raised me and, and gave me and my family so many opportunities. So I'm going to go ahead and continue to do that um, in some kind of way. Um, but I have so many other, you know, I can just sit back and, and explore my opportunities um, moving forward. But um, yeah, I'm really excited about what's going to be next for me. Um, take a pause and maybe get some sleep. <laughs> and, then, 
and then think about what's next for me. But thanks for asking. I know you said you're not exactly sure what comes next, but do you think that running for office again is in your future? I'm not sure. You know, my, my team always, you know, I think, you know, before I jumped in this race, people were asking me to run for lieutenant governor or other positions, uh, you know, statewide positions. Um, but, you know, I'm committed to Madison, you know. Um, and I said, I'm not going to run for any elected position unless it's mayor um, because, you know, I care about this city so much. And so um, I'm not sure whether it'll it, I'll run anytime soon. You know, this was it. This was it for me. So there's nothing yeah, that I'm thinking about. Um, and then how would you say the implementation of your strategy post the primary worked out of trying to reach more audiences? I think it worked well. I mean, I think obviously not as much, but um, I think it worked well. I think, um, you know, again, I, I, it was more about messaging and sharing um, my strategies and my messaging with the community, um, you know, far reach. And so, but I, I think that we did, um, we hit really hard with the students. And as you can see with the numbers, we did really well on campus. Um, and, you know, I really try to hit those areas where, like, for example, Kennedy Heights uh, was an area that I grew up in, right? That was the first place that um, I was, you know, when my parents moved here. And I hit those doors, even though they, they didn't have a history of voting. Because, you know, I feel strongly that people who don't vote don't have a reason to vote. They have, you have to give them a reason to vote. And we, don't, we shouldn't ignore them. And so um, I, I, got a, I got a message today from someone who said, my mom walked from Kennedy Heights to Mendota Elementary School to vote for you. And so that's what I'm talking about. And so those are the voters I really reached, and those are the voters that I really care about. I care about those silent voices that we don't hear from who are significantly impacted by the decisions that we make. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. Over the past few months, candidate-elect Janet Protasewicz has made Wisconsin's 19th century abortion ban one of the biggest drivers of her campaign. With the results now in, Democratic State Representative Lisa Subek of Madison and Kristen Lyerly and an OBGYN who used to work in Wisconsin but had to move to Minnesota due to the ban, joined a public affair host, Carousel Baird, earlier today. There, they spoke about the role that the state's abortion ban played in yesterday's election. This is just a portion of their conversation, which can be found in full online at wortfm.org. So I, I want to really sort of trace the role that elections have played out and get everyone's sort of opinion of how elections have played out since Roe v. Wade um, has been overturned in June. Specifically here in Wisconsin, right, Biden won in Wisconsin. This was before Roe v. Wade was overturned by around 20,000 votes. Tony Evers and Josh Call won last November. And they won by around 100,000 votes. Josh Call a little bit more, Tony Evers a little bit less, but pretty much around 100,000, which is significantly more than 20,000. Janet Protasewicz yesterday 
won by around 200,000 votes. It feels like the voices are getting louder of when abortion is on the ballot. This is an issue that Wisconsin cares about. Who Can anyone sort of help with that? And I don't know, Lisa, if you want to chime in, are you someone that pays attention to those numbers even more so? Sure, sure. So, I mean, I think right now a lot of what I can add is more anecdotal than anything else. But certainly abortion is an incredibly motivating issue right now. And the reason it's so motivating is because it cuts at our very freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, this is actually a right and a freedom that we have had for nearly 50 years since Roe had been decided. 1973. Suddenly June, yeah. Yep, suddenly last June was taken away. Roe didn't have its 50th anniversary. Um, we suddenly found ourselves, we woke up one day with less rights than we had before, but it wasn't just, you know, when you talk about rights, you talk about really specific things. It goes beyond the right to an abortion because the right to choose safe and legal abortion cuts at your ability to be able to determine your own future, which really is an issue of your basic freedom. And I think that that is why this is so motivating to so many people. People think about what a world looks like without access to abortion care, and it is what we are living through right now. It used to be some, you know, I worked for years to try to overturn our ban in case this happened. Yes. And I think it was hard for people to relate to what that meant. Um, And now that it's happening, people are terrified. People are scared. People know that they could find themselves in need of an abortion and not have access to one. It could be their child, their partner, somebody they're close to, or themselves. And so I think this is really a motivating issue. What I can talk about from... An anecdotal perspective is I spent a lot of time knocking on doors over the past several weeks and few months um, talking to voters about this election. And I have to tell you, as somebody who used to run for office in the spring when I was on city council, you'd knock on doors and people didn't even know there was an election. Right. This time, every single person I talked to knew there was an election. They were motivated to vote and they knew why they were motivated to vote. And the vast majority of the time abortion got mentioned and it is because people understand that this is a a threat to their basic freedom and i think we will continue to see that play out i do think it's important to note that it has to play out in all of our elections because if this only plays out in a judicial race we will not solve the problem for the long haul i am thrilled that we elected Justice Janet Prota, Justice Elect Janet Protasiewicz, who will be seated in July, and who will be seated at the end of July. I think it's important for folks to know that that there is a lag time there. Um, we have this abortion case moving forward. I think it will get a fair shake. That said, we still need to change our laws. We still need to change our statutes. So it is so incredibly important that people who are motivated by this issue not only be motivated now, but they be motivated in every single election going forward. This is what we saw the anti-abortion movement and the far-right conservatives do for years. They made abortion the issue in every election until they got Roe overturned for their people, right? Yeah. Like yeah. For their people, this was the motivating force I think we, I don't want to say we were complacent, but we were secure in the fact that our freedom was protected. And I think we learned an important lesson, that our freedom is, that there's always a threat to our freedom. 
and we need to actively protect it. And so this is a moment where now we need to say, look, until every single person has access to safe and legal abortion when they need it, that we, that we don't stop, that we don't move on to the next big thing or the next issue because we have to change our statutes. And it's true not only about abortion, but it's true about non, you know, it's true about fair elections. Yeah. If we want fair elections, we not only need to change the courts, and it's an important piece, so the cases that come before them get a fair shot, we also need to be able to make statutory changes, to change our laws to better protect the people of our state, to make sure that our freedom is never again infringed upon. Dr. Liley, I wanted to get your thoughts on, as Lisa was talking about, this was an important issue, but people didn't feel the fear. What kind of conversations have you been hearing in your practice? I mean, Wisconsinites and the numbers we have seen, Wisconsinites and citizens in the United States support access to abortion and have long before Roe v. Wade was overturned, but they're now motivated by it more. Do you, are these conversations that you've been having in your practice and you see with doctors? I didn't feel the fear either back when Representative Subak was banging the drum and saying, we need to repeal this 1849 law. We were all saying, yeah, that's never going to happen. Well, here we are. And I think now one in four women in this country will have an abortion in her lifetime. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think now we're really starting to realize that this hits close to home. This is happening to us and people we love. And when you define it in the political realm, when it's just words, when it's just politicians talking about it, it's like bargaining chips. You know, like they throw around the words rape and incest, like like they're playing a game. When I sit in an exam room with someone who is a victim of rape, that's no game. That's her whole life at stake. Mm -hmm. And she's one person. Is she willing to come forward and talk about it? Is she willing to pursue it? What is she willing to do for herself? What kind of counseling is she able to get? And then just multiply that times one in four women in this country. So suddenly this has become a very personal issue. And I think that is why it's gained ground and why people really believe that this is the thing that we have to stand for. And I know that you're probably going to transition to this, but it's become about our values. So when Janet Protosiewicz was talking about how what she believed in, she wasn't talking about how she will rule on cases. She was talking about what's important to her. Well, we saw that up in Green Bay in the mayor's race. The mayor has nothing to do with abortion. But we know that when he's making his decisions, his values align with mine. And one of the most important values that we share is the protection of a person's ability to make their own decisions about their own bodies. And his opponent did not share that value. And that was very clear. So this has played out, I think, in elections that we would have never expected to see abortion be an issue. I mean, I think that's a good example. There was right this whole conversation about the fact that the mayor's race in Green Bay, where the incumbent mayor um, who did win last night, he was successful. He won reelection. He talked about being pro-choice. And again, the mm-hmm. opponent said, well, you're running for mayor. This has nothing to do with being pro-choice. But you're right. This isn't about just whether I personally have the capacity to 
uh, perform an abortion or change the laws to allow you access to abortion, but what my individual values are. It's been an important conversation that voters are looking to see in the people that they elect that they value the things that are important to them, including access to abortion and reproductive freedom for women and individuals who can become pregnant. Yes, and when we let politicians control the dialogue, they use words and they make abortion and even access to any sort of women's health care. I mean, periods, contraception, it's all taboo. They don't want us to talk about any of that. But when you're actually having these conversations and you're really thinking about how this affects you in your real life, it becomes so much more real to you. And I think that is why abortion has become a very tangible issue, because suddenly we're taking it out of that that political realm where it's not real and it's become very real to us. That was Representative Lisa Subek and OBGYN Kristen Lyerly talking with a public affair host, Carousel Baird, earlier today. You can hear their full conversation online at wortfm.org. And it is time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, yesterday turned up to be a little more of a bust in terms of severe weather than was expected. Uh, So very much in contrast than the last Friday. The setup yesterday had looked fairly similar with a comparably strong low pressure circulation lifting through the upper Midwest on a similar path to last Friday through northern Iowa and central Minnesota with a similarly warm and moist air mass being drawn northward ahead of it up against a very pronounced warm frontal boundary lying across southern Wisconsin. And there was, again, very strong low-level wind shear and high amounts of rotational energy in the lower atmosphere, so a good setup once again for tornadoes. The warm front, as it happened, approached the area from the south even later than the models had been predicting, having got delayed additionally by thunderstorm outflows overnight last night. So warmer air never actually made it up into Dane County until around dawn, and then it was just for a couple, three hours. But even down to our south, uh, south and west in Illinois and Iowa, where several lines of strong storms went through yesterday, including a good number of supercells, Uh, The tornado count ended up being much lower than last Friday, uh, not for any clearly identifiable reason. There were some uh, pockets of low-level dry air that had been identified that might have suppressed convection in uh, certain areas, and storms may also have been challenged by a stronger mid-level capping over much of the area to our south. In any case, despite our uh, more quiescent night here last night, the tornado count from last Friday's outbreak uh, has continued to rise after investigations of additional damage paths. Uh, So we're now up to 12 tornadoes this season in Wisconsin, including an EF1 storm that trekked for nearly 13 miles across Lafayette and Iowa counties Friday evening just before 7 o'clock. Well, we've uh, finally seemed to have uh, kind of drained the fight out of the atmosphere the way it appears, or at least we, uh, I guess, will have drained the fight out by uh, later tomorrow after these howling winds finally come down. Uh, The next solid week then after that looks pretty bereft of any major atmospheric waves. The polar jet, which is currently diving down and around the upper trough that's behind our current storm, will be lifting northeastward past us Friday as the trough gets bumped eastward by a Pacific origin air mass that will ease the thermometer upward over the weekend. 
Moisture return northward up the back side of that air mass as it departs later Sunday and Monday will be a modest at best and without any strong upward forcing from a nearby jet stream, uh, the closest of which will be hundreds of miles to our north by then. I'm not expecting much uh, in the way of precipitation, just scattered showers Monday. The air mass approaching for the mid part of next week is going to be supported by backing upper winds ahead of a deeper wave that will be entering the Pacific Northwest and adjacent Canada. So uh, south to southwest low and mid-level winds should, I think, take temperatures into the 70s as we get into the mid part of next week anyway. Perhaps well into the 70s at that, especially if we can hold off the cloud cover that's going to be accompanying the advance of the next cold front. All the major long-range models show that uh, frontal boundary next week stalling somewhere uh, to our north and west in the late part of next week as the approaching upper trough from the Pacific kind of digs over the Rockies. So the likelihood of putting together maybe four or even five 70-degree days in a row actually looks pretty good at this point. We've barely been past 60 so far this spring. But back to tonight, uh, lower clouds uh, should eventually scatter out as we go through the evening. There'll actually be probably a little bit of an uptick over the coming couple hours in Madison. Then they'll uh, slowly wind down from there. The upper clouds thinning as well. Temperatures will continue to plunge into the, uh, well, into and through the 30s, uh, down to a low about uh, in the upper 20s by dawn, all of which... Uh, temperatures will be made to feel colder by south to southwest or southwest to west winds up at uh, 15 to 20 miles per hour, gusting to 30 miles per hour or better still through the night. Tomorrow should be generally uh, clear but windy with uh, some short cumulus growth perhaps in the morning hours, but much of the day clear. Uh, with temperatures recovering to the mid 40s on westerly winds still up in the same range, 15 to 20 miles per hour and still gusting up towards 30. Winds will finally abate tomorrow evening, uh, veering more northerly and coming down to 4 to 7 miles per hour during the overnight. Temperatures will drop to the upper 20s under generally clear skies. And Friday, uh, skies may see additional uh, cumulus development through the daylight hours uh, as light winds veer lightly east and uh, then south, but temperatures will make, I think, 50 or so. Will be partly cloudy and hang up in the mid-30s during the overnight. And Saturday, southeasterly winds uh, veering more southerly at 8 to 12 miles per hour will take temperatures, I think, to 60, maybe just shy of that, giving uh, what will be passing uh, high and mid-level clouds that day. We'll drop to the upper 30s then in the overnight and be back in the low 60s on Sunday with continued uh, southerly winds. At the moment, down here at the station on Bedford Street, the temperature is 42 degrees. The dew point temperature is 26. The winds are out of the west, 15 miles per hour, still gusting up towards 25 or 30 with some frequency. Uh, just a few scattered uh, cumulus in uh, cloud streets west to east up above the station at about 3,500 feet. And the barometer is rising at uh, 29.88 inches of mercury. We go now to April 5th, 1968. And the days to follow for the local reaction to the assassination of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Stu Levitan has the angry and mournful details on this week's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, Friday, April 5th, 1968. 
Once again, thousands gather to grieve atop Bascom Hill, just as they did in 1963 for the state's official memorial for President Kennedy. But this time, the morning is different. The morning after Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination in Memphis starts with a heated disagreement between Chancellor William Sewell and a group of about 20 black student leaders over their competing plans for service that noon at Lincoln Terrace. Sewell, who has already canceled that afternoon's classes, wants the students to speak as part of the official university program, an idea they emphatically shout down. A black person was killed by a white person, declares Sidney Glass, head of Concerned Black People, and black people must lead the memorial, not just speak as part of the program. Things get tense. Sewell yields. He agrees to make introductory remarks, announce that he's keeping several buildings open for students to gather in later, and then allow the black students to run the program. The program itself is full of bitterness and anger. Clara Meek, one of five students to speak during the 20-minute program, breaks into tears. I have a dream, too, she says to the crowd of about 10,000, almost all white, that one day every darn one of you is going to pay. Kenneth Irwin says, quote, there is no other course for black people to take than to riot. And unlike during President Kennedy's memorial service, there's a march at an estimated 15,000 fully filling six blocks of State Street. It's the biggest demonstration in Madison's history to date, other than to celebrate an athletic championship or the end of a war. Rows of black Madisonians up front leak arms and alternate between freedom songs and militant chants. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around, interspersed with black power. They march around the Capitol and up Wisconsin Avenue, heading down Langdon Street to the foot of Science Hall, where they sing two choruses of We Shall Overcome, then move in great numbers to the buildings that Sewell has kept open. Once there, they stay for hours, black and white, engaging in the most candid conversations about race the campus has ever seen. Observing the packed auditorium in social sciences, Sewell thinks it's the capstone to, quote, the greatest day for education that had ever hit the campus. The regents aren't so impressed. They pass a rule requiring permission of the president and the regents' executive committee to declare a campus holiday. Saturday night, the biggest folk singing group in the country is at the Dane County Coliseum. Peter, Paul, and Mary open their concert with a tribute to King and a haunting rendition of Bob Dylan's When the Ship Comes In. Sunday afternoon is dark and windy, as a crowd of 3,000 gathers at the Capitol for the Communities Program. It's highlighted by stinging comments from concerned black people's Ardenette Tucker, who condemns, quote, the Madison community which still believes there are no race problems here. I will break some windows to make you care. Then four white men, Reverend Alfred Swan, Professor Maurice Zeitlin, businessman Jack Van Metterheim, and Father Joseph Hammer lead the silent march down State Street and out University Avenue to the First Congregational Church for a memorial service, attended by Governor Mrs. Warren Knowles, Mayor Otto Feske, and other dignitaries. Equal Opportunities Commission Chair Reverend James Wright speaks, Reverend Swan recites Lincoln's second inaugural address, Rabbi Manfred Swarzenski preaches scripture, and Reverend Robert Borgwart reads from King's letter from Birmingham jail. Reverend Richard Pritchard, the only Madison cleric to have spent time in the South for civil rights, is not invited to participate. 
a special offering for Dr. King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference, collects over $1,000. On Tuesday, Madison School Superintendent Douglas Ritchie keeps schools in session during King's funeral, but he tells principals that pupils, quote, must be well informed as to the significance of Dr. King's life and informed concerning the issues of equality for all students. Two nights later, the City Council finally agrees to the long-standing request from the Equal Opportunities Commission for a paid executive director and votes 19-2 to 2 to create and fund the $10,000 position. Mayor Otto Feske says it's, quote, a matter of the highest priority as the events of the past week have lent a special sense of urgency to the issue. The commission has been led for the past several years by its volunteer chair, Reverend Wright. The only alderman to speak in opposition is a member of the EOC, Alderman James Crary, employed by a Dane County Deputy Sheriff and appointed to the commission by former Mayor Henry Reynolds. I don't think we have a serious racial problem in Madison, Crary says, but within five years with a director, we will have one. When Crary's term on the commission expires two weeks later, Mayor Feske does not reappoint him. As expected, Feske on May 18th names as the EOC's first executive director, its chair, Reverend Wright. A native South Carolinian, the 42-year-old Wright holds a bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of Wisconsin, formerly served as associate pastor at Mount Zion Baptist Church, and operated a nearby barbershop. This spring, he has also been attending the Urban Training Center at the University of Chicago, focusing on police community relations. And April 68 is a cruel month for the university itself, as Regents President Kenneth L. Greenquist, an eloquent and forceful advocate for the university during difficult days, dies of cancer at age 58, the day after King's murder, not quite six years into his nine-year term. A former two-term state senator from the Progressive Party, a Navy lieutenant with World War II combat experience in both the Atlantic and Pacific theaters, and past commander of the American Legion, the Racine attorney was ideally suited to defend the university against conservative attacks. He fought the American Legion itself in the mid-1950s when it denounced the university for allowing left-wing speakers and pushed back against more recent Republican criticism of the Daily Cardinal and student protesters. His death and the end that month of fellow liberal Arthur DeBartle Baden's nine-year term leaves only two Democrats on the board, enabling the seven appointees of Republican Governor Warren Knowles to effect what DeBartle Baden calls, quote, a partisan takeover of the leadership that will, quote, harm the university. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-sponsored WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Special thanks to our feature contributors, Carousel Baird from A Public Affair and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kaderman was our engineer this evening. Nate Wuggy helped produce the newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. <laughs>